Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders, brought to you by Nexus IT Security Group. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. We've got the elusive Brian Clickenbeard on the line today. Brian is an analytical security expert holding executive level technology positions and been involved in the cybersecurity product creation space. He's an extremely technical virtual CISO with a different view on how to keep information identities protected. If we lost him to the dark side, companies would have some big problems. Welcome, Brian. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for coming on. I am glad to be here. I hope to hope to provide some helpful in insight from a different perspective today. Yeah, perfect. Let's get things kicked off. Tell us how you got into technology and security and make sure you don't leave out any of the pretty uh, details. Well, it's actually um, kind of a, a, an interesting story. Most people, you know, have some some goal in mind, I guess, when they start or they uh, find some interest. I just happen to be one of those people who's curious about things to a level where if something's broken, I, I recognize that you can't break it any worse. And I, as a very young child, started taking things apart and fixing them, um, learning how they worked from the physical side, and ultimately ended up buying a kit computer that was a Kynar wire wrap computer, pre-solder back in the days of the mainframe. It developed over time. I followed that interest in um, college. Uh, worked in a college lab, yanking out the old token ring cable and replacing it with a, the networking cable as ARPA started going onto the internet. The pocket protector with the notepad in my pocket that had all of the domains at that time, all of the admins for those networks. And then um, I moved to Texas, at which time I um, had the unique opportunity of working on, on one of the first TI Texas Instruments mainframe systems that was being rolled out for college education. I managed to, um, as part of a lab, break that computer and was working uh, for the company that made it 24 hours later. One of those people that, you know, you hear about back in the pre-days pre when there weren't laws against hacking, when it was pretty much an open range, but the computers weren't connected to every refrigerator across the continent and every toaster. So uh, over time, I've uh, worked in various roles in technology, various sectors, everything from hands-on development of uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, prominent e-commerce systems, websites. I watched the first it graphic come onto the internet and uh, originally uh, started on the tech side, more along the lines of help desk working to support uh, one of the larger companies that um, outsourced technical support for their products and services, ultimately became a webmaster after right-clicking and reviewing source code, learned how to write code for websites uh, by doing that, 
and uh, spun into these other other areas of product development and uh, and systems. So that's pretty much how I got started. It's always been something that's a, a curiosity to me. It's the only thing that I've found that provides a constantly changing environment to stimulate someone with, I guess, what you would call a borderline ADD personality. Uh, <laughs> It gives me uh, a constant challenge, and I have not stopped learning from the day I started back in the 80s, actually. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story and really leads perfectly into this next question. So before I ask this question, let me give a little bit of background. So when I first spoke with Brian, he had done his research on me and our company, Nexus IT Group. He knew exactly what we did, who we did business with, where we were located, and even the platform our website was built on. Uh, he even knew that I had sent him an email from my house on, on Google Fiber Network. You know, it's very interesting initial conversation. So Brian, have you always been someone to question everything that comes your way? Or is this a learned behavior over years in the industry and you're seeing all the carnage? Um, it's, it's actually a combination of, of my own curiosity and situations that, that have happened over time. Initially, I was one of the first 40 people, to my knowledge, um, who suffered an identity loss due to the technology side of, of things in that uh, I had applied for a reward card that was in a beta program. The very first reward card ever issued by any company happened to be beta testing at a local grocery store. I had endured a horrible, horrible drive uh, on the 4th of July pre-day to uh, try to rush home from work, uh, make it to the bank before the bank closed, cash a check, so that I could, of course, obtain all of the necessaries for a for a Fourth of July party, and when I got to the store, they offered this reward card. Of course, being aware uh, not to give out information, I told them no, and then they informed me that I could cash a check uh, in the line, cash my payroll check in the line. Um, once I did this, I realized it would save me time and I might not end up um, in the rush in the next situation. So I went ahead and filled it out. Some months later, when uh, my identity had been stolen, and literally, uh, literally, not figuratively, my bank accounts had all been seized by the feds okay. due to these massive charges that were built, were built up on cards, I ultimately figured out how it happened. They had, were actually calling me to find out if I was at work or working from my home office. If I was at home, they would entice me to uh, come into work without giving me full details, claiming there was a meeting and then hanging up or whatever. And they were physically retrieving the, they physically had retrieved the credit card and the PIN card, the PIN number from my post office box and were intercepting the credit card bills that hit my home. Um, that went on for a period of three months, and they racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars of charges on my otherwise perfect credit score. It was literally when I got down to my last $5 and was at the store buying a meal waiting on the next day's paycheck, because of course you can't cash a paycheck if your bank account is seized. You have to you live check by check going to a check cashing place. I threw that reward card onto the counter for the discount that it offered and recognized that the signature on the back of the card matched the signature that had the credit card companies forwarded me. And I knew exactly where the identity 
uh, theft had happened. So I was able to uh, address it. But at that time, there were no laws to prosecute the people involved for that. They ultimately had to prosecute them for misuse of a social security number. There was no identity theft law. So to get my money back, uh, the money that they had seized was a challenge because the local police did not have criminal department uh, for cyber, for, for identity theft. And the FBI isn't really prone to writing you crime reports. They don't do what typical police do. You know, if there's an accident they don't or break in, they don't write out a report and provide it for you the same way that, that a local or city or state government would uh, if in the police department. So it proved very difficult to resolve the issue, and it took me a number of years. And I, in the process, learned how important it was to protect not only my data, but also the data of the companies I was at were doing business with, the, the employees, the vendors, and, the, and suppliers. Um, all of that data is a target that's ripe for hackers. If they'll dive into a dumpster for it because the company mistakenly fails to send a shredder for the document that they at that time were faxing over to a data center, faxing was still very popular back then, and they don't have the manual that came with the shredder that told them the business process. They just happen to have the person who knows how to run the beta program. Then the forms get filled out. Uh, they get sent over to the data center and manually entered uh, at that time. Um, and then uh, threw the document into the trash because they didn't know they weren't supposed to. So it's made me hyper aware of that combined with other life lessons up to and including the concept of farming where I, I grew up in Kansas. And um, the situation of cows on a farm is no different. If you have a fence to keep them from wandering off or rustlers from taking them, someone has to ride that fence and maintain it. And someone is typically riding a bigger herd, keeping them organized so they don't wander off into the remote areas of a property where they're not paid attention to that's that's the data of today is is your you know data farm and your cows are the are the data and if no one's riding the fences and no one's uh, riding the herd they wander off the data gets lost or uh, someone will come in and take it from you so it's a combination of how I see things I believe that makes it easier for me to to understand the perspective it's not so much that I think like an evil person but I am capable of figuring out how they think by seeing what they've done. Sure. Yeah, so it sounds like you were on the forefront of the importance of cybersecurity, being affected by it, not necessarily on the, I guess, defensive side, but that had to be one of the first few cases of, of such activity, wouldn't you think? It was, as, as from, from what I understand, um, there were 40 people here in the um, DFW area who were targeted by this group. And they've perpetrated other other things. I've kept track of, of the people that were involved, and they, they pretty much are criminal actors who behave that way pretty, pretty much everywhere, up to and including ha after being out of, out of trouble with law. At the time, they moved on to bigger things and better things like figuring out how to scam the gas pumps. Hmm. that are all now digitally controlled, yep. uh, figuring out how to um, scam uh, reward card programs, those kind of things, where you're, where you, or, or a prepay card, 
they're, they're a criminal element and that's their behavior. That's, that's, you know, how they survive, I suppose. In this case, they're not typical of, of the hackers. They find the vulnerabilities to survive by leeching off of others. And that is part of the threat. That doesn't include all of it. Of course, there's there are, are the political actors and activists in that frame, and then there are the hacktivists. So it kind of depends on the perspective. It's, it's, it's diving deep and following the crumbs to figure out what the purpose and intent is. In some cases, it may take a considerable amount of time to establish what the real intent is. You may think it's, it's the intent you see and recognize quickly. Uh, and then later realize that you missed it, that uh, that was just a distraction uh, from what was really being ha- really being done by them. So I find out the facts. I don't I don't jump to the conclusion based on the initial assessment. I dove deep, looked at the looked at the logs, looked at the packets, looked at looked at the traffic, looked at the pattern, and then started looking to find it other places to compare it. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it almost sounds like a serial killer uh, yeah. investigator, you know, really yeah. finding the root cause. Uh, sometimes sometimes I do lose track of of physical time when I when I find something that is uh, deep enough. I have gone hours of time chasing down individual pieces across the internet to try and and uh, and grasp it to the point that I I don't eat or drink. I just sit here and at the computer and do it. And other times, um, I can put it away until I have availability. Um, if if a customer issue comes up, I jump to that priority first. But most of the time, the things that I find that are new are the result of something happening to someone who is a client or someone who knows a client and they've referred them to me to, to help with a problem no one else can solve. I like solving problems. It's, uh, it's, it's a unique opportunity for me to test my own intelligence, I would, would guess, is, is my motivation, uh, that and helping people to be more secure. Sounds like this is your passion. If you were to have all of the life things taken care of, you didn't have to worry about money. What do you think you'd focus on? What what are those things that keep you up at night and, and make you not eat? The things that, that keep me up are uh, the intents of some of these hacking groups and entities. We're not we're not facing the same threat or risk that we were. Uh, decades ago that somebody might, you know, steal your identity or jack your bank account and take your money. Um, What we're dealing with now is a new landscape, so to speak, of that is beyond most people's comprehension to understand. There are people who literally have stated on these sites, if you dig deep enough and, and do the research and follow them, that their their intention is is as simple as just causing disruption and at the same time you wander or pivot just one le- level horizontal or vertical from that team or that hacker individual that's a part of the team and suddenly you find that there's a statement there that they want to destroy the western world by whatever means possible um if that means raising your your data and erasing it, they will do that. Their their battlefield is the electronic connectivity 
that we have so easily and readily accepted in without considering the ramifications of, of what happens when it fails. A generation of people who rely on a cell phone functioning to give them directions where to turn to go to an event or to a, uh, a client site, I find that somewhat intriguing that uh, uh, when you ask them to put down their phone while they're driving, they don't know how to get where they're going without their phone, even though it's visually right in front of them. They gradually have, have become a peripheral to the computer versus using it as a peripheral to them. Um, they become totally dependent on immediate answers from a, from a device, but they don't consider in any way vetting where the information is coming from. So yes, when, um, when you originally contacted me, my first assumption was that you were phishing me because I've had that happen so many times. So I built my own system that allows me to use cognitive AI and do all of the business information gathering and business intelligence on a company or an individual find their old posts online, find find the other crumbs that are existing out on the internet about them to, to verify the facts of who they are. It would take someone a considerable amount of effort to falsify that much information in order to attempt to compromise me. Plus I'm not that that I, I, I don't I don't perceive that that I have that level of value to gain that level of interest. So yeah, sounds like I got to switch up my messaging, huh? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it, is, it is living your life with a suspicion of, of the technology. And I think that came actually prior to computing because I grew up in a world where you've, you've got two, two cultures. One is, the, one is the culture of growing up where you're forced to be totally self-reliant. Um, you're on a farm or you're um, in a remote area of a suburb that you're, you're not, you know, in the big bustling city and a wrong mistake will get you run over by your own tractor or uh, stranded out in the, in, a, in the middle of a field with a broken leg and, and there's no, nobody who's going to come save you there or you grow up in an area where there is uh, a danger, a constant danger which heightens you to it. Uh, what I find is the people who grow up in the middle, who, who aren't faced with dangerous streets or a dangerous environment, become, they just aren't aware of the threats of their surrounding. They, they don't realize that uh, when the weather says, says there's a blizzard coming in, it's a good idea to have a coat in your car in case your car breaks down. They've never been in that life or death situation um, they've never, they've never faced a challenge that tests their own survival. So you learn, you learn from those experiences, I believe, how to handle rough situations. It's one of the things that comes out of, of course, being in the military. Um, you're, you're in a hostile environment. You learn how to be more alert and more aware of, of what's around you. In the cyber world, that is a challenge because it's on a wire. You don't see the electrons carrying the packets or the radio carrying the packets going through the air the same way that you see 
if you're surrounded by a pack of wolves while you're camping in the mountains. You don't know it's a threat. You're not if you're not looking for it and don't see it, you become comfortable with it being there and perceive any threat at all from the wire where I grew up knowing that you don't walk up and touch a wire out in a farm field with the inside of your hand, because if it happens to be an electric fence, your hand will clamp around the wire and you will not be able to let go of it until the current keeps stops flowing. You always touch it with the back of your hand. You always test it. That kind of a thing is, is something that is, is learned. I do believe you can learn it from life. If you, if you recognize how those physical concepts apply to technology. Everyone is a hacker. They just don't know they are. Uh, yeah, that sounds like something that we should think about capitalizing on, um, you know, using those you know, target areas that you mentioned, you know, rural areas or urban areas to you know, find people with those street smarts, teach them cybersecurity. It seems like a reasonable way to start shrinking that talent gap. Uh, the, ta- the, the talent gap, I think, is, is, is compounded by a couple of things. Talent gap can be what holds the interest of the young and what available time and what holds the interest of, of the older. Though there are, there are self-motivated people, people who, you know, uh, you, see, you see movies about the guys and, and photos and magazine articles with pictures of guys wearing a hoodie uh, in the dark hacking. And that is not what it, what it was. It was a box full of parts and a, challenge, a challenging puzzle um, to put together. It is the people who who may not necessarily relate as well to to those around them as most do uh, because they think differently. It is zeros and ones to me. It either is or it is not. So I'm pretty intolerant to a certain degree for anybody who thinks there's something between zero and one if it's an on or off light switch. It's just a box of switches and wires to me. There is no in-between. Uh, it being on or off. So uh, the people who think that way and who are excel in computing, for me, for me, it was a one day. It, for me, it was one spe- specific event that triggered my awareness of it. And that was taking a tech support call from an individual who had spent 68 hours of physical time on with help desk trying to get a computer problem resolved. He was a pilot and could not book his um, flights for his bids to fly uh, back when CompuServe was a predominant ISP, and it was the way that all of the pilots would access the back-end systems um, for what was the first e-commerce platform, Sabre. Uh, Sabre Res, and, uh, which was, was part of uh, a, the American Airlines product, was the first e-commerce system online uh, selling to the public, selling airfare. And this guy could not get his modem to connect from a remote area. And I took the script that was the normal call center script after looking and seeing how many people he talked to and basically said, look, I'm not going to follow the script. I'm going to solve this a different way. I'm going to ask, start at the beginning and ask you every possible question and ultimately the one question that was missed was, when did it quit working, if it, you knew it was working, and do you celebrate Christmas? 
And <laughs> the guy said, how could that possibly be relevant? I said, I, I know it may seem ridiculous to you, but that's the only way I can figure to answer the question, ask the question, do you celebrate Christmas? He goes, well, yes, we do. And I said, so do you do the traditional uh, family trip around Thanksgiving? And he goes, yes, we do. And I said, you stated that you moved your office to the living room because one of the younger children needed a bedroom. Yes. Did that happen right before you left on your Thanksgiving vacation? Yes. Where was the Christmas tree this year? And he went, it was right here next to my desk. And there was a pause. And he began swearing and realized that, no, his modem was not, in fact, plugged in. Uh, He had unplugged it to plug in the Christmas tree. And that the LED he thought was lit was actually being illuminated by his desk lamp because the angle was just right to where the light went over the edge of the face of the modem plate and was hitting the front of the LED, making it look like it was illuminated. He had spent almost two weeks of physical time insisting his modem was on to everybody he talked to. Oh, man. Uh, And I was able to solve that problem, to which he said... Uh, you know, I, I have to say, I've I've talked with probably everybody there, and I said, I think you pretty much have. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's not that many people here in this support department that do what we do. They're, we're all the senior mentors, and you've talked to pretty much everyone here. And he said, so what's it like to work with that kind of intelligence? Because there's some really brilliant people. And I was standing up and looking, and I said, well, over in one corner, we've got a group that are doing nerf mortars from cube to cube (laughs) side we've got some guys that are tossing a nerf football we've got we've got uh four or five people that have extended their headsets who practice their putting in the aisles between the cubes and the guy two cubes cubes down from me um once a month for two or three days comes in with uh waist high leather boots a big felt hat with a feathers sticking off the uh, the back and practices his fencing in the aisle. Of course, this gentleman is incredibly intelligent. He happens to run the Dallas Fencing Club now. Uh, (laughs) uh, He's he's an exceptional, exceptionally intelligent individual. And I was laughing. And then he said, so you work with a bunch of geeks? And I said, yeah, I work with a bunch of uber geeks. And then I said, oh my gosh, I just realized I'm one too. Uh, <laughs> I was joking. I said, I never realized it before. Oh my God, I'm a geek. I don't know what I'm going to do now. <laughs> I'm basically forced to admit that, you know, the first thing I did when I figured out how to write, how to, how to uh, reverse engineer Quake was build a call center model in Quake tie it to the aspect phone system so when you went around and wandered into the cubes you would be able to hear the uh the audio stream from the cell from that particular phone uh playing in the cube the same way that you would hear nine inch nails playing in in quake if you were going from level to level Hmm. Uh, and it became the management tool that the call center upper management used uh, because all you had to do to roll somebody who was in idle over to f- and force them to the next call was just walk up and smack them with the butt of the butt of the shotgun in Quake. So the I used the Quake interface to run a call center. Yeah. So it's it's understanding that the tech, the way the companies that write it see it, may do things that that they don't consider 
the idea that you could use an Excel spreadsheet to control traffic lights in a town with VBA macros is not something most people think of. They just don't realize it's code. It doesn't matter. It does not matter how they think it works. It matters what you can do with it. You're, you're constantly seeing the capability of what it offers. It gives you that insight to be able to do things other people just don't think of or haven't thought of yet, I, I guess. I'm, I'm pretty sure, sure that there aren't a whole lot of original thoughts. Who, who finally says it and gets the attention for the thought? It's not like uh, we haven't already flown to the moon. So the concept of flying to Mars is just an extension of that. It's not that we haven't already, uh, as children, thought about how a human can fly. It's just that we didn't have the technology that was light enough for us to do that on something with electric motors and propellers the size of a skateboard to to do that. So it's kind of, for me, thoughts thoughts don't flow the way they do for most people. It's not so much a random as it is a constant nesting loop of things that all tie back into the same thing. And that is tech is cool. If you can make it do things other people can't, then they, they, they think you just as much a God as, as the, uh, in the old, olden days, uh, someone who uh, was able to do a magic trick and make it appear like they had removed their thumb and reattached it. Mm-hmm. It's not really magic. It's it's just that it's too complex for a simple mind to understand unless they look at it and pay attention. Most sure. people are so busy living their lives, they don't pay attention to the tech that's everywhere around them. Yeah. So, so I have in my home, SIM, IDS, IPS, uh, logging, vulnerability management software, patch management software. I have everything proper to secure a company. Um, running in VMs in the background on my laptop. So where I go, I have my own sock on my laptop, basically. It's not that hard to do. Uh, it's just that people don't think to do it. They don't realize that not having it means not knowing what's really going on in your computer. So you take that and, and, and roll it all up, and pretty soon it becomes a pattern where as soon as you see something, you recognize right away it's not what it appears to be basically it's the i guess i I guess you would compare it to the movie where they you know the child becomes disillusioned shortly after they find out santa claus might not exist that they've been lied to by their own parents (laughs) can you ever trust them again Easter Bunny, now you're going to say the Easter Bunny's not real. I mean, come on, really? <laughs> I have to make up there's Easter eggs. Come on, there's an Easter Bunny. No. No. We all want to believe those kind of um, glorious things, and that's what creates the, the vulnerability for someone to introduce things that, that are false information containing only a minor percentage of fact to them. Yes, a brick can fix your can, can help your computer be secure uh, from crypto ransomware if properly applied to the screen, so you don't turn it on because the screen's broken. A brick will help fix the problems with your computer running slow. It will never run slow again if you smash it with a brick. <laughs> Won't run at all. <laughs> That's the question you asked. <laughs> 
the question becomes one of, you know, the question is always more important than anything for me. And that is, do you ask the question, how do I patch Windows 10? Or do you ask the question, why do I need to patch my computer? If you don't know why, and you're provided the answer to the question, you don't learn how to properly solve the problem. Problem solving is a skill that apparently challenges very powerful people. They cannot figure out how to solve very simple problems. And when you see those solutions, sometimes the answer is so ridiculously simple that simply mentioning it to the people gathered around trying to solve the problem will make you forever outcast because they feel so stupid at not having come up with an answer. And the only reason that you did is you approached it from a distance. They, they are too close to it. So you're hearing, you're hearing it and seeing it from outside the group to be able to see it from a perspective. They can't because they're too close to it. Everyone jumps to the conclusion, like in the case of Equifax. Well, well, it was because this, the CISO's education was in music, uh, has no relevance. They didn't patch. It was because it's a female, uh, has no relevance. They didn't patch. It's, it's because they didn't spend money on this and that. No, it's, they didn't patch the, the stuff they had. Ultimately, that same patch, that same vulnerability exists everywhere. It is the concept that you can, someone who doesn't know all the facts would say, you know, well, my house got broken into. Oh my gosh. Well, do you have a deadbolt? No. Oh, well, you need to put another a deadbolt in your door and that will fix that. You didn't ask the question, how did they break in? They broke in through a back window. Putting a deadbolt on my door is not going to fix that, is it? Oh, well, no. You know, uh, they don't ask questions. The market is, in, in what we're doing with these tools, is it's all marketing and sales driven. It's not solution driven. The parties who, are, who have a product to sell want to sell their product. So there aren't questions. There are, what are your pains? And, and, and how can I solve your pains? Well, the problem is that the patient shows up and they're suffering a pain, but no one realizes that the pain is because they have a bone sticking out of their leg where they've broken it. You can't ask a person, well, did you break any bones? How would they know? They can't see it. They may know if they heard a snap uh, or their leg folded up, but they don't know. They just know they're in pain. So asking them what they need, uh, they'll tell you they need pain meds. <laughs> what, they, what they need is uh, surgery. They need somebody to come in and, and do, open it up and, and, and fix it. Uh, but they don't know what it is that needs to be fixed. Our whole concept of, of products going into companies ends up being who can sell their product the best. And the pretty box and the, and the swanky salesman wins out over the company that focused more on functionality and security and features than they did on the marketing ad slick that's on the cover of the, of the box or now, uh, since most software is deliver, delivered you know, online from the money that they spent on SEO and tracking and all of the processes around uh, the interaction of delivering with online capability. So 
where uh, the company that has the better product fails the marketing because they have the better product. The company that has the better marketing fails the customer because they spent more money on marketing than they did on the product development. Uh, We see that every day. Free stuff isn't free. It never is free. Um, There's always a price somewhere that is either going to be in implementing it and maintaining it or it's going to be in constant patching. So we look at a company that's made billions of dollars and has billions of dollars in the bank capable of buying uh, boats or yachts that would by themselves cover purchasing of a, of a rather, rather large town you could buy for a billion dollars. And you ask yourself, why is the free part of the product that's open source that they're using to interface their product vulnerable? Well, they spend a lot of money on a boat instead of securing their software. And we, and we, we see that they sponsor the, the big companies sponsor and market brand and name. And then there's others that are known for product over time. If they change that and start following what everyone else is doing, they fall off. I mean, you think about it. What is the difference between Sears and Amazon? Stock price. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sears had the distribution. They had the locations where they could have had had uh, shipping hubs in every store. Their their catalog used to be in every outhouse on every farm. So, you know, they had basically a captive market in the outhouse. And of course, the sections of, uh, you know, the joke joke of the day back then was, you know, there's two sections that were the last to be pages to be torn out in the absence of toilet paper in the outhouse. And that was the ladies' apparel and the farm implements and tools. You tear out the stuff that you don't want and don't want to look at. So, you know, the farmers had kept the uh, ladies in dress photos, uh, you know, and the, and, the, and the tools because that was the stuff that was worth keeping around. Ultimately, they never figured out how to convert a paper catalog over to a digital catalog and turn their stores from being customer visited to being distribution hubs and customer visited. And that's what we're going to face next. As Amazon continues to grow, it will choke out more and more small businesses that serve a local community. People will wonder why there's no place to go look at shoes simply because everybody's bought their shoes off of Amazon. Or there's no place to go look at electronics because it's cheaper to buy it in, in, you know, from Amazon because they buy it in quantity. It is it's how Walmart coming into these smaller towns and mid-sized towns killed the main street business person. As they moved, I watched that happen here in Dallas. They moved a mere 15 miles and main street came back to life because the distance was not worth the savings to the people who were formerly going there. They moved back and it put the strain back on main street again. So mm-hmm. digitization of everything the the, the, conversion to electronics for everything and our continued acceptance of it ultimately could lead to there being only one or two places where you can buy a motherboard. So they will determine what the product is that they carry. And that becomes something that eliminates entire sections of market. 
very common, very common thing that I'm seeing now. It used to be that uh, you could price shop a motherboard from three different locations. And now you find that they have a count of quantity of how many they have on hand or they're waiting for a resupply because everything's just in time. Everything is just in time so they don't have to have warehouse space. And that works great until you have a Hurricane Houston or a Florida hurricane. You know, when those, when those kind of things happen and you have a, a hurricane that's in a major city or in a major section of a state, now all of a sudden, where is the gasoline that they need to get out of town? Well, they're getting three trucks a day because they have smaller tanks and a smaller filling station. It's not like before where a filling station operated for days at a time without a refill. Now it's smaller. Every day they get restocked, so they run out real quick. And then people don't realize that change has that change that's a possibility because there's a system that automatically notifies the distributor of the fuel when the tank is at 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 fifty percent. Okay, let's increase the par. Let's 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 order a new truck when it gets to sixty percent. You know what? We almost ran out. Let's go ahead and make it sixty five percent. So it becomes automated to the point that a computer is telling us what to do. And when that happens and there is no there is no buffer available, then you pull up at a filling station, there's no gas. They don't realize that the problem is the technology has technology and time has reduced the size of the fuel tanks underground to a level that is constantly being restocked. More trips. There's more trips on the road. It's still a full tanker, but the truck is going to more than one location now. It's not going to one store. It's going to 10 or 15 and offloading partial cargo. So you think you're accomplishing some improvement uh, by the implementation of the tech, but the reality is since you can't measure that return of investment on implementing the tech, it, it makes it makes ROI a, a farce. It's a, it's it, it's it's a farce. There you 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 can't tell me how much the difference in cost savings you have for a laptop you bought at a Best Buy or a Fry's or a Micro Center. You can't you can't say that that device you know had a return if you don't measure it, and no one's measuring. We're mm-hmm. all buying stuff. It's obsoleted. And we throw it. So yeah. not having having those things in place, what you end up with is you have people who no longer know how to measure the value of what they have. They don't even know what they have. They don't understand the details of what's coming out. So um, as an example, I was at a conference and, and the person speaking uh, provided a question on blockchain and asked uh, there were about 150 people in the room asked if any of them would be implementing systems with some form of blockchain in the coming year. And almost everybody held their hands up. And then he offered $100 for the first person who could tell them, how does blockchain work and how does that make it uh, what you're doing more secure? And not one of them could answer the question on the basics. Not No one knew. But everybody read the LinkedIn article about blockchain, 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 cloud, 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 cloud. Petcha, 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 petcha. It's an echo. It's like 
it's like second phrase of a pink pink floyd song you know hello is there anybody in there in there in there echoing every time something happens it gets people's attention they use that as the marketing hook to get you to click to go to read about how their product solves the problem no it doesn't patching solves that problem overwhelmingly the majority of these problems are from mismanaged systems they are they're cars that are not being maintained people don't realize your computer and your servers and your systems are no different than your executive mercedes if you don't change the oil you will trash the car it has to be maintained tires have to be replaced transmission fluid has to be you know checked every so often if 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 you do a lot of heavy driving you need to occasionally you know make sure that the antifreeze is rotated out um, every once in a while, it's not a bad idea to refill the windshield wipers and replace the wiper blades. Check the belts. Check. People don't realize that the technology is a tool. And if you watch the old school guys that are still using their hand tools, they're, they're using their steel pipe wrenches, etc. You will notice that at the end of the week, when they're done working, they clean their tools and they put them back in the tool bench. They return them to as close to the original state as possible so that they have them to continue using them. If you leave that monkey wrench or pipe wrench out in the rain, it rusts and it is no longer usable. It requires maintenance. It requires knowing how to use what you're using. Unfortunately, we now have a generation of people who are in the workforce who do not remember what it's like to have to organize your Rolodex periodically to remove obsolete contact info and add new contact info that's missing. They won't even know how to recover if their contact list is, is lost because their computer gets wiped. They don't have a paper backup. So how could they possibly design a system that's redundant for that level of failure if they've never lived in that world? You can't. So you've got people who are developing who don't know security. You've got people architecting who don't know security and you've got people requesting things they want who don't know what they need who don't know security and ultimately if you go back far enough everyone who's been around a while can remember just how painful it was to wait for three weeks when you started with a major corporation until the unix admin actually or the or the network admin actually configured your computer so you would be able to use it on the network he had an ip list that was kept in a ledger there wasn't software they kept it in a ledger on paper so you knew what you had because it was on paper it was slow it was painful so we made it easier we made it to where it's automatic you plug it in it grabs an ip hey you're on the network we made it easier you plug it in you turn it on hey it shows up as a printer and then Ultimately, instead of that person with the knowledge being empowered to do more and better secure, they basically said, we don't need them anymore, and they let them go. So it's that packet is still the same. The packet is still there, but LAN, WAN, and Internet has changed to LAN and, inter LAN and Internet. No wide area network in there. So everybody is operating their extranets on the internet instead of in a WAN. Why do they get hacked? Because hackers can see it because it's not in a WAN. 
it's not in a tunnel. It, we have all, uh, in the interests of making it faster, easier, and more efficient, hacked the security right out of everything that existed where it did exist and continue to do so every day as is proven by the fact that the day it went on the market, the latest iPhone sold out. Nobody's provided a technical review of it yet, but yet it's already on networks all across the entire globe, wherever those mm -hmm. phones were sold. Nobody has t had time to beta test it in their network, but yet the people know the username and password, so they show up tomorrow and join their new iPhone right onto the internal network because nobody knows that and remembers a day that your parents or grandparents were not allowed to run their own personal phone line into their place of work or yep. or carry their own and you know even as tech became more prevalent to carry their own computer into into work and put it on the desktop and take it home every day that just didn't happen you didn't bring your computer to school i can remember when the question was are we going to allow the ti pocket calculator into the school does that prevent the student from learning how to do math without the device won't they get to the point where they don't know how to do math with without it well yeah i i guess you could say i'm one of those who is blessed that if an emp were to take it all out i could still use my slide rule uh, <laughs> it doesn't require batteries and and certain places they could still use the abacus so it's understanding the foundation, I think, is the key. And then applying on that, how do you secure it? How do you keep something secure? Well, something happens, somebody breaks in, you realize you need to secure it. Something happens, someone steals your bike from the front yard. You need, you learn not to leave your bike laying in the front yard. <laughs> you put it in the garage. Somebody goes through the open garage door and steals your bike. You learn to put it in the garage and close the door. We have stopped learning how to secure as fast as we have learned how to make it easy. Mm -hmm. and, and the bottom line of that is that, yes, I can sit on one side of my chair wearing one hat and say, I think it's absolutely imperative that I be allowed to carry my phone in because it has all of my contacts, it has all of that information, and, uh, and I need to be able to, to function using tools I know and understand. But on the other side, I can, I can put on another hat and say there is absolutely no way that you are going to convince me to allow you to carry your phone into the conference room or into the sales floor where we're gathering merchant numbers or account details for customers or dealing with transactions that may or may not be under NDA because I can't manage your phone if I don't own it. I can't monitor it unless I own it as a company. Therefore, it shouldn't be in the building. If it's not something I can secure, why would I let that why would I let that in? People say, for example, that they think that that is not within a company's right to tell you you can't carry your phone in. Um, yeah, it is. If you want to work there, you have to do what they want. You can't go to work in a construction company and tell them, I'm sorry, but I'm just not going to pick up a shovel. That's hmm. not my, I'm not going to run a backhoe. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit in an unair-conditioned bulldozer. 
<laughs> you can't tell them that. If you want to work, you have to do the job. And if, you know, if the job is one that requires it, that's what you have to do. People have become so accustomed to getting what they want easy that they don't realize I can, I can teach anyone how to survive without tech fairly easy. And all you have to do to test any incident response plan at any given moment in time is totally unannounced. Go flip a breaker, the main one, the big one at the top. <laughs> yep. Just walk in, say unannounced, say, okay, everything's secure. You got your backups right? Yes. Okay. All the APCs are working great? Yep. Okay. All the batteries in the APCs have been cycled and you know that they're all good. And they'll say, okay, how long will we be on if the power goes out? Okay. And you ask the questions and then you just walk in and flip the switch and you leave it off. And you sit and look at your watch at the door and you wait to see who shows up. Go, yeah, this just went offline. Oh, so it didn't help having the APCs on everything in the server room because you can't log into the server in the server room over the network in order to do a graceful shutdown if your computer is in a wall outlet that isn't protected by an APC. <laughs> yep, there's the flaw. Okay, flip the switch back on. <laughs> you know, fix that. Let's do it again. You have to test it. You have to You have to not trust anything, including yourself. Sure. I have, people, have other people test you. I'm not offended if somebody tests something I say I think is secure at all. Um, in fact, I challenge them to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's recognizing there are no longer experts the way there used to be in the days of the apprentice and the master, where sure. someone who knows teaches an apprentice and they develop into the into the role. There are no masters to learn cybersecurity from if everyone is failing at it. So when people say or tell me or introduce me as you did, I always make sure that I clarify that if I am an expert, as people say I am, uh, we are in big trouble because I'm challenged every day. And I don't know anyone who is not challenged every day by this, simply because there are so many places in the house of cards where you can flick one card and the entire thing collapses. The protocol, for example, uh, that fails and has a vulnerability. Can you tell me everywhere that there's a four-way handshake in technology? Do you even know what a four-way handshake is? So you don't understand that. You can't understand what the difference between a four-way and a three-way, what that means as far as how the technology works to realize that what WPA and WPA2's recent disclosure of vulnerability is, is basically an interception at the point where your phone rings, you say hello, and I say hello before we decide we're going to talk in French so that no one can understand us. They're already in. They're hooked. They're on it. They say, okay, we're going to speak in a foreign language so no one can understand it. Let's talk with zero encryption and English. Sure, it's a foreign language to somebody, but it's not a foreign language we can't can't intercept. And that fundamental understanding prevents people from grasping the real truth about what a potential is. Is a sharp broken bottle a risk or a threat? Depends. Is it in someone's hand who's hostile or is it discarded in a ditch on the side of the road where no one ever walks barefoot? Everything is dependent on 
other factors that people don't consider in, in, in risk assessment. So risk and compliance and, and security and compliance, I see differently from everyone else. Compliance is what you're legally supposed to be doing in order to be, even be in business. Equifax should not be in business as a result of the breach they had. They're not compliant if they're not managing their patches. They shouldn't be in business. Forget that. If you're secure and you're secure defensively, then you're not responding to ongoing, never-ending incidents of attack that cost you every single incident. I've seen it in place in dozens and dozens of companies where they have anywhere from four to 6,000 people and have 10 to 15 incidents a day on different end-user computers where the computer is impacted, it has to be shut down, packed up, shipped off. It's handed off to a help desk person who does one step and goes somewhere else to this, measured for risk and compliance. By the time you total up all of the man hours that are spent, they could have put the most expensive endpoint protection on that device and still saved money. But there's no way to track the ROI, remember? So they don't know. They don't realize that they're spending the money that should be going on defensive security and proactive management of their systems. They're spending that on one incident at a time. They're stopping at every filling station and putting air in a tire that has a hole in it, basically. You're going to be doing that until the day you replace the tire. Sorry, it's not going to fix itself. <laughs> and, and that is the reality of the situation. If you've got a leaking gas tank and you've got oil leaks in your car and you've driven through a parking lot with nails in it or screws and your tires are leaking, you are going to stop at the filling station every day, put oil in your car and gas in your car and air in your tire. And it's going to become a regular thing to where you don't realize how much time and effort you're wasting every single day repeating steps that don't improve security. And it, it can add up really quick. In a company of 6,000 6, uh, 6, machines they think they have, when you run the inventory system on the network and find out there's actually three times that many because everybody's iPhone is on it and their iPad is on it and they're, um, maybe they, they have a Surface tablet that they're using because they like Surface and, and they're great. So they put that on there. And, oh, guess what? You've got four Apple watches on your internal network. Why? I don't see those in your policy anywhere. Why does somebody's <laughs> Apple watch need to be on the internal Wi-Fi network? Why? Why is it not on guests? Why, why, why are you giving the employee the credentials necessary to join the internal network? Why is someone in IT not doing that? Because you're not managing it. You're not managing what's on your network. So, boom, calculate it out. You end up where you're looking at $8,000, dollars $10,000 per week in staff that are solving incidents due to, oh, well, yeah, no, that's a phishing email. That's a phishing email. It did get into your computer, and it did uh, encrypt your computer, um, and we know exactly what it was. It's already happened 10 times. Well, if it's happened 10 times, why hasn't somebody blocked it at the email server? Well, the help desk doesn't communicate with that department because that's in the networking side and the server side. So what you end up with is the, the vertical silos of the way that the legacy companies were organized ends up preventing the help desk 
from being able to effectively pass the communication on because, well, nobody's nobody's reviewed it. The people who are running things are in meetings all day and never visit. The, they're generals that never visit the front, and they don't realize that's a half a million dollars a year on trivial incidents, trivial stuff that can be easily fixed. Yep. That ROI piece, I think that's one of the biggest challenges you know, within most cybersecurity programs. So you know, one thing that I know we spoke about right in the, the midst of all the Equifax information starting to, to come out was the cost of what's just occurred for Equifax versus the cost of what it would have cost to have not a, a, an issue. With that being said, the cost that's associated with a breach be it stock prices drop in, uh, fines, fees, et cetera, and comparing that to implementing all of the most fancy tools and having the most expensive firm in to you know, test all your programs and top talent, et cetera, and comparing those two costs, what does the, the outcome come out to be? Can you touch on that a little bit? How I like to realign the thinking in the C-suite and the decision-making side is this. There is a cost of doing business. There is a cost that is always going to be present in business that is loss, that is not, you, you always have cost centers that don't produce revenue. They cost money. What it takes to increase your sales 2% in order to gain a point zero zero percent increase in revenue versus what effort is required to take one percent out of your loss it is so ridiculously simple it's the justification for why tech has been implemented incorrectly because sure a person can be twice as productive if they have a computer and they're not writing their order forms and managing their customers in a Rolodex <laughs> as a salesperson, if they've got this system that tracks everything and tells them with messages, as you can hear, I'm, if they're coming through the audio, I'm getting messages in the background fairly, fairly nonstop from systems all over the place telling me what's going on. I know what's going on in real time on those systems. If you have that, you think, okay, that makes us more productive. It's not so much that you're reducing costs and the need for people as increasing the pipeline potential that you have, what your capacity can be. But you have to realize that if the power goes out due to a local storm, your business comes to an instant halt. Um, I recently frequented, uh, I have a customer who has an executive automobile repair company. They they do Mercedes and BMW and Porsche and Audi and, and exotics. That's not a, a dealership service center. The power went out and they could do nothing because they couldn't order parts online. They couldn't even access the, the contact phone numbers for the people that they buy from because those were in the computer and not on their stored on their cell phone. They didn't have a printed list of their vendors. Their VoIP phone system didn't work. So the customers were calling and getting nothing. It was just ringing because they didn't have a failover plan that reverted back. I walked in and asked a question, and that was, do you have your check-in sheet printed out? 
yeah, I've got a copy of our old check-in sheet, but we haven't used those for years. I say, how many copies do you have? Uh, 10. And I said, well, you can take 10 cars in, but guess what you can't do? You can't print any more of them. You, you know, you'd have to take it to Kinko's to get, a, get more copies. Your printers don't work if you don't have backup power. So maybe what you need is instead of this $10,000 in marketing that you're thinking about spending for SEO ads online to get new business, maybe what you need is a $5,000 generator because you just lost all that today. You lost the entire day productivity-wise. And, and believe it or not, situations like that, they're, they don't realize that. They don't realize that not having pencils and paper around in the case of an outage <laughs> is actually a very important thing to do. Not having one analog phone line coming into your server room, if, if your internet's not working, means you're doing your tech support via cell phone, which technically is not allowed in a PCI or HIPAA environment, is it? <laughs> So, so, you know, uh, what's, you know, why do you need an analog line in the server room? Because you can't carry a phone in there. And at the same time, you're, you're dealing with these, it's, it's a it's a running living program in the mind of anyone that does cybersecurity. Any change, what does that change impact in the process procedures, the compliance, what risk does it introduce? Should I measure that risk based on the potential of, of it happening? Should I follow everyone else's guidelines that's failing and use that as a measure? <laughs> I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to do a whole heck of a lot to beat the most recent examples of cybersecurity failure in the world that sure. have taken, taken these companies down. You can do it with free software. if you understand how the free software works and know how to use it in a way that doesn't increase a security risk because it's going to be open source. It's probably going to run on a flavor of Linux. And if you go search and you do it by CVE, search for vulnerabilities on Windows, vulnerabilities on, on, on Apple, vulnerabilities in Linux on each different flavor, you will find that there is one of them that has pretty much uh, over the course from the first of the year to now had two and a half or better vulnerabilities per day come out. And that's Linux. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, it's cheap, but like I said, it's or free, but like I said, there is a price. So the question is, do you want that price to be in the expense of trying to find somebody who is is a unicorn who can keep your Unix patched, <laughs> hmm. keep your systems up, or do you want to spend that on on a Windows OS or another OS where there's cost and instead be paying for a more dependable and secure system because you're you have the management systems to sit on top of it that are part of the part of the product now where okay, everybody hates Microsoft, okay, uh, fine, I'm agnostic. Uh, everything has a place. But two days ago, uh, open office, critical vulnerabilities were announced. Tomorrow, there'll be one in office, Microsoft Office. Uh, the next day, there'll be one in 
something Apple wrote or Google wrote or whomever, there are going to be new ones that come out. Challenges to not quit switching horses mid midstream, and know your know know your inventory, and know the tools you have in place, and request from the vendors every possible component that they've plugged in that may have a vulnerability so you know that you need to look for it. It's the airbag in your specific model Honda that's vulnerable in the case of Takata, not every airbag. But if you don't know this model Honda has a Takata airbag, you don't know that that you are at risk. You're at a higher risk, a risk that is high enough that the product had to be recalled. We don't have software recalls yet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yet. <laughs> okay. Let's just go ahead and take that whole, let's just hold, take, take that whole PHP thing offline until they get it secure. Well, you can't, it's everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take uh, struts out, uh, but you can't, it's everywhere. Now where, who, who owns struts? Do you know? It's the interface on everything Oracle. It's if they have a web interface that uses Apache on Linux and has struts, it's on an Oracle product. So struts is vulnerable. What does that mean? The open interface to everything Oracle is behind it. It's Mm. exposed. So you go back to, uh, okay, what else is in there? JRE, Java. Who owns Java? Oracle. <laughs> okay. So, so okay. Uh, SMB has a problem. Who owns SMB? Nobody. It's a protocol everybody used and everybody accepted and everybody adopted. Who owns PowerShell? Well, we know that's Microsoft. So, we take something that works in a Windows environment. Now we're going to make it work in a Linux environment too. Oh, and well, let's go ahead and make Linux work in Windows too. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, okay, you know, I mean, I hate to use, in a way, I kind of hate to use this comparison, but this is, to what we're doing with this is is like grade school at the age of learning how to kiss. Mono goes around. <laughs> There's a couple years there <laughs> in young development where mononucleosis gets transmitted by kissing. Okay. And and then there's mumps. And there's of course head lice. And in what you end up with, you 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 end up with these things that happen that are patterns and you can't see how they fit in with tech. It's it's really simple if you just step back and go, okay, how did it really happen? Equifax happened for very, very simple reasons that are so ridiculously simple to fix that from a perspective of someone who understands it, my answer would be, if it is a public company, we need to, as people who invest in in stocks and who invest in these companies need to, and the law needs to support that if that level of gross incompetence exists that causes that kind of a breach, the government is not the one that should benefit from suing the company. The individuals who are harmed are. Mm-hmm. It should be, It should be. okay, what was the damage amount? And, okay, here, here's your money. And it shouldn't come from the stockholders. It should come from the incompetence. 
And you know, you, when you say, I would say that, you know, of course, I'm going to make a lot of my fellow C-suite execs very upset. But if you're incompetent, you're incompetent. You shouldn't walk. You shouldn't be exiting stage left with a golden parachute and all of the benefits of all of the value that you added to the company that were granted to you in bonuses for the past five years. If in fact we find out two years after the breach that it was everyone in the in every single consumer of Yahoo whose credentials were leaked, how do you measure that? How do you know whether your credentials at Yahoo were used to breach something else where you use those same credentials? Well, that's your fault. You use the credentials in more than one place. Well, no, not if everything's tied to click here to use your login. For Yahoo, click here to log in using your Facebook or your LinkedIn. <laughs> hmm. Let's make it easy so that they can all, let's make it easy for the end user and violate the very simple concept, don't use the same username and password in more than one location by saying, use your LinkedIn login everywhere to log in. You can use mm -hmm. it on Salesforce. You can use it on this. You can use it here. You can use it there. Oh, at Facebook too. So now told people, the end user and the user awareness, not to reuse their username and password. But in the meantime, you put federated login across everything in your company and tied it to your active directory. Mm -hmm. which is exactly contrary to what you're teaching the end user. So to make it simpler, <laughs> you introduce a forced situation where they can do nothing but use the same user password on multiple mm -hmm. systems. <laughs> so, do you not see the irony there? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, but you have to back up. You have to back up from it and go, okay, so how does that impact? Well, is your WordPress tied to your Active Directory? What do you mean? Does your authentication for WordPress tie to your Active Directory? Yes. Is it public-facing? Yes. So if WordPress gets compromised and they can drop a page on the WordPress site using an exploit because you used a free plugin on your free WordPress that you're hosting on your own server, which is running free Linux that isn't secured and patched and managed, and no one's updating WordPress, they can use the Jobs Manager plugin to drop a web page. It will post that the site's been defaced up to zonh.org or zonh.com, a hacker site. Uh, don't go there unless you are absolutely positive that your security is up to snuff or you will pay for it. Those tools, those bots that are attacking, defacing, reported up there. Now another system is scraping that data and running another attack to see if they can drop a page. If they can drop a page, then they drop a page with code in it. So they can call the page and the server will reach out and grab content from Pastebin or Git or wherever and run the code. And guess what you got then? You've got a breached server with a shell on it. Now they go in and they modify the login page, a second or third or fourth run by different entities who are scraping the data off of the reporting sites. And then they modify the login page so that when you go to Binky's Tire Store or to XYZ uh, Nail Salon or uh, your local auto shop or your lawyer's office or your doctor's office and sign in to schedule an appointment, when you go to log in, the credentials are being scraped, forwarded to the hackers, and it logs you in anyway, and you don't even know your credentials have been hacked. 
that's just great until they get the credentials for the person who happens to be the network admin and the router sitting at the front of the network gateway isn't in a red active directory zone so the credentials to access the router via ssh are the same as that person uses to access wordpress and now they're into the router as an admin see where it goes it looks really simple oh well it's just wordpress what can go wrong <laughs> well if you don't have the systems to monitor the traffic to your servers that are face every server that's facing public i'm not talking about the ones that are just fall under PCI or HIPAA or any of the other compliance standards. If you're not monitoring those and the traffic coming to them and you're not restricting traffic from places that don't need access, why, why does someone in South Africa need access to a tire store in Kansas City that doesn't ship tires out of state? Why? They don't. If that's where they're from, they shouldn't even be able to see it. We haven't put fences in from the very beginning that help to restrain proximity to our consumers using e-commerce. I can put up a website and immediately sell my knitted cat uh, hats for cats to the entire planet. Okay, well, yeah, sure you can. But that means you're exposing everything in the, in the MySQL database that's behind your WordPress site because there are PHP vulnerabilities and there are plugin vulnerabilities and there are server OS vulnerabilities. So those minor little risks that keep getting mitigated away, when combined, it's like, um, well, I stabbed you with a pen knife, poked you with a nail and uh, shot you with a BB gun. And, uh, you know, it's a death from a thousand cuts, none of which are critical enough cause a cataclysm but when it's combined a hacker can find a way to pivot from one to the next to the next to the next and walk in so it is impossible it is impossible to secure anything unless you consider everything and even then still a castle surrounded by a moat filled with alligators and piranha is still vulnerable uh, when the technology allows people to fly in from the air or use a hot air balloon. Because from a hot air balloon, you can drop deceased carcasses that will spread disease ultimately in the castle. Mm -hmm. uh, you could drop plague-infested rats right into the castle with little parachutes. If the people who are managing the IT don't understand what the true vectors are, I've, I have people every day who say, why in the world would somebody attack my website? Well, who are your customers? Um, you do domestic cars. Is there anybody, do you have any important, famous people who come to your shop? No, not really. Okay, well, then they're probably trying to get the credit card numbers of, of, of your customers. Trying to steal data that they can use to buy stuff on your credit. They're not even stealing your money now. They're, they're, they're beyond taking your money from the bank. They're stealing credit. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I mean, <laughs> we have 77, what is it, 70-something, or how many trillion dollars in debt? <laughs> Everything's on credit. Mm -hmm. 
And and guess who's allowing them to steal your credit? <laughs> the companies that are credit reporting agencies. Because, <laughs> 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 oh, uh, Equifax says I got good credit. <laughs> wow, Willie. Well, yeah, sure. I don't live in South Africa. How can anybody in South Africa access their system and get credit? If they really know who I am to be able to validate, how can somebody get a credit report with a different address from what they have if they really know who I am to give a good credit report? Think about that. Mm -hmm. The information, the data, the underlying data that we gather may be accurate. 100% accurate, but it can still lie. <laughs> it can still lie entirely if uh, there's any place in that loop where there is a vulnerability that allows something to be tweaked or modified. So, yes, I have horrible credit on Equifax because Equifax granted credit to somebody who wasn't me in my name, and they won't reverse it until I have a criminal report. <laughs> oh, man. From <laughs> law enforcement to reverse it. So technically, I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time not laughing here. <laughs> so technically, the best thing that ever happened to me in preventing people from being able to steal my identity was they stole my identity and ruined my credit. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> now, here's the problem. You, as a consumer... You don't know if the job you didn't get that you applied for that you really wanted where you really could have added value was denied to you because of your credit report. You don't know how much more you've paid over the past couple of years on car insurance or on a loan interest from a bank based on the risk assessment that considers your credit report. All of these things are happening in the background. And as a consumer, you do not know that you have already been paying for Equifax's negligence. You've been paying for it. Everyone has. We all have. Unless you have perfect credit, in which case they'll loan you the same exact magic non-existent money. <laughs> that get convert over to real paper when well you don't ever actually see the paper right you it goes to the bank and it goes from the bank to another bank and there's really no you know uh, the the interchange magic moves money all around and at midnight and okay all the banks are uh, readjusted so there really wasn't any money changing hands until somebody pulls it out of the bank in the form of cash right so you're there how would you possibly know how much of every dollar that you've spent or were charged for those things is based on a credit report, who it was that it went to? And then you stop for just a second and say, okay, well, you want, better you want a better credit card, right? So what do you do? You go online to a website and you fill out a form to see if you can get a better credit card rate that gets submitted to you don't know yeah you go online to search for better car insurance and you put in all of the same information equifax leaked your driver's license your license plate the vin on the car possibly your social security you click the button and it submits it to who every car insurance company comes back with a with an answer they spit it out to to three six a dozen 
and you get results, you get results back, you know, uh, oh, well, look, there's 12 different quotes here. That means 12 different people got your data. Do you know if any of them are secure? If you want a fun experiment, do this. I mean, I, I, you'd have to check with the legality of your particular location to figure out if you can. Sure. Or not. If you go register with partial information on the uh, current medical program website, <laughs> I'm not going to give it a name because it's not about that. Okay. It's not about politics. It's about that app. If you do that, you will immediately start receiving phone calls from computer dialers trying to sell you things that aren't related to health insurance on a brand new phone, and they will know your name. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know who pulled that data as one of the participants into their system and is reselling that data because the sites don't tell you who the affiliates are. So when you sign up, and you read the thing, it says our data is shared with affiliates in the normal blah-blah-blah business. Uh, it goes back to the fundamental first point issue of the day I was breached. There was something very unique about my signature. I have always signed my signature with something that's unique in it to a certain degree. But that particular day, I happened to be signing on a counter that had a hole where a piece of equipment had been removed, like a small screw hole, and the sure. pen poked through the paper, punched a hole. So when they scanned it, the, the a continuous sweeping line had a piece missing out of it. So I knew that it wasn't the piece of paper that was in, that wasn't their system that had been breached. It was that they took my signature from what they had on the paper that was there because it punched that hole right out of the paper. And they just drew it, but they skipped over that part because when it was sitting on another piece of paper, they didn't realize there was a hole. They were looking at it. So they thought that I picked up the pin, and they picked up the pin. And they signed the credit apps in my name with all my information. It's, it is a complex way of, of thinking that can if you find something significant enough it can keep you from it can keep me from sleeping um i may i may go for a week on four three to four hours sleep a night and then once a problem is solved sleep for 16 hours <laughs> <laughs> or i may be able to solve it instantly so i would say that the best uh way to to develop those skills not only if you're doing cyber but if you're in a workforce is to play that through your head if whether that's a game or whether that's a whether that's a, a way of thinking you play that through your head so that you develop those skill sets um, in, in in the nightclub industry we we used to for security people, we played a game, and that was if you could run up and touch, if you could manage to get close enough to somebody in security that you could touch them in the back of their neck, like a wet willy kind of a scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Take the fingerprint pad, you know, we had the little had the little fingerprint stamps, you know, where you stamp people's wrists or whatever. Sure. Take take one of those pads and put a little ink on your hand, and if you can dot somebody on the back of the neck, they were distracted and not paying attention to the environment around them. Mm -hmm. And if you did that, they had to buy your aftershift uh, burger. So <laughs> it trained people to constantly be aware 
of what's around them when you're in a hostile environment like that. So I had the benefit of being in the farm and, and also being in a hostile environment. And, and that developed a, developed a skill. Anyone can do that if you consider that every car that's driving down the road may be following you with a Wi-Fi sniffer, sniffer trying to intercept your cell phone. Do you know? Do you pay in close enough attention to recognize the same cars you drive by every day on the, on the way into work that, that every third or fourth day you see the same Peugeot <laughs> yeah. or, or the same beat up old Volkswagen bus? Uh, do, are you aware of your surroundings? Because if you're not uh, aware of your surroundings, you won't be able to be aware of what's going on that you can't see that's in your surroundings. If that if that makes sense, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, makes a, a ton of sense. A lot of great insight. Yet again, last question before we get into overrated, underrated. Really excited to, to hear your opinion on this because I remember when we spoke, it's a little bit different than some of the other individuals at your level felt. So, you know, do you think end user training is a viable option for cutting down on intrusion, or do you think you know, phishing emails are always going to be clicked? Social engineering is always going to be effective. That is probably the most challenging aspect of of cybersecurity because ultimately, the end user is the biggest vulnerability in every solution set where you do have the problem. So, so I'll answer that question two ways. First, does the environment have all of the necessary and proper tools, systems, processes, and procedures in place to protect that end user from, from phishing emails? Yes or no? Does it have that? Does it have SPF? Is DKIM for outbound email and DMARC in use? Uh, most companies have made this transition to Office 365, and if it's proper, if it's not properly set up, they miss things that benefit from having the product because something like SPF using the DNS text record to determine who the authorized senders are. And then combine that with DMARC and knowing that the mail goes automatically into junk where you can tr then train the end user that junk gets high, a higher level of, you know, scrutiny, then fine. Yeah, end user awareness helps. But if, in, uh, but if the technology is not in place and you're thinking that you can make every employee of your company a firewall for phishing email. I have some really nice land just south of Florida uh, where you can go raise your unicorn herd. <laughs> because the reality of that is so farcical. It is so ridic ridiculous that, uh, and I see it, I see it at least twice a month someone will call me and say hey i never got an answer on the on the file i sent you what file well i sent you a file so that you could see if it had malware in it yeah it does i never got the message what do you mean well if you sent it and i didn't get it it got stopped somewhere so let me go turn this off hold on okay resend it 
Uh, let's give it a few minutes. So how are the, how are the kids? You know, what's going on? Uh, how was your trip? Blah, blah, blah. You know, well, you went on vacation here a couple of weeks ago. How'd that go? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, I still don't have it. So let me turn this off. Go look. Okay. Yep. Uh, let me turn this off. Okay. Uh, send it again. And so, um, how's that initiative you've got for this going on? Blah, 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 blah. I still don't have it. Okay. Let's see here. Let me turn that off and okay. Now that I've turned off ATP and I've turned off all the packet filtering and uh, um, blocking on the firewall and the network traffic and now that I've uh, removed that, commented out all the Yara rules that catch this and that and blah, blah, blah. And oh, guess what? That just hit, hit my endpoint protection. And now I see the message. So let me do this. Let me forward it over to another account and I will go ahead and click the link because that endpoint protection looks at the destination link and what comes back if it hasn't seen it before to see if it's something hostile. Oh, yeah, it's hostile. And let me go ahead and open the PDF and see if it kills the, oh, yep, killed Outlook. Yep, it's hostile. Yep, so there's five places along that path where, sadly in this case, what you think is securing you is actually putting the burden on somebody who is receiving hundreds of emails a day because everything you do is by email. Mm-hmm. How can you possibly expect someone to recognize the email that came from within the company because one employee got fished successfully because your antivirus didn't catch it? And your vi- your outbound filters didn't catch the catch the malware coming on, and now the hacker has access to your Outlook web access because you have it turned on so that companies can so employees can access it from anywhere in the world except you're only a U.S. business. So <laughs> why? <laughs> okay, and they're fished. Meanwhile, the hacker's reading through the emails, figures out how to craft something and sends it from you from your breached email account internally how can you possibly expect someone who's had the the time to research those emails how can you expect someone in finance not to think it's a valid request that came from a valid employee to change the routing number for for a vendor you can't you you can't do that you can't expect that it is unrealistic that one outlay in 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 three different scenarios over two a two and a half year period there was two and a half years where i had three specific incidents related to ach diversion okay that starts with user awareness they say well if we just train the users that won't happen no it will happen because guess who the user was the user who was impacted was prospective buyer of a home it wasn't an employee it was a prospective buyer a customer who did not have something presented to him at the time they set up the the home deal the the realty co to represent you know represent them as a buyer the seller hired the realtor the realtor didn't pass along this is how we do it in an email didn't say, look, we will never ask you to change the routing. Here is the routing that comes with this. This is where all of these things go for your deposit, blah, blah, blah. So they intercepted them, got into their account, and then they used that account to fish the realtor. 
and they got compromised. So then they had the realtor account and the uh, buyer's account. They could see their email. So now they can go send a message as the realtor to the prospective buyer requesting the deposit, delete the outbound message from the realtor because they didn't turn compliance tracking on in their, their mail server. They don't even know the mail went out because the hackers are monitoring, pulling it down every minute instead of every 15. So they have, have plenty of lag time. They wait watching that account, and the instant the email comes in, they drag it over to the desktop and delete it from the mail server. Uh, yeah, you need me to, to send the money now? And they craft a new one that says, yes, the buyer has reduced the price $30,000. If we act now, there's another buyer who's ready to close. I want to get you the deal. Can you do it today? It's pressing. Sends that message to the buyer and then deletes the outbound message from the realtor. And then goes, boom, ACH from the, from the buyer. They send the information to the realtor for the confirmation. They delete, delete the message. It's on a Friday. And guess what? It's three days before you can intercept anything. As it stands right now, you have 48 hours. If, if you know a fraudulent transaction has occurred, you click the button and go, oh, my God, that was fraud. I just wired a million and a half somewhere, and I don't know where it was. And you contact the FBI right now, <laughs> right now. I mean, this instant, they they basically have said that they can reverse it if it's within 48 hours. Any longer than that, uh, good luck. It yeah. may or may not ever happen. So, okay, that's one. What's the down payment on a $2.5 million home? Yeah, right? half a okay. million, quarter million. Yep. Half a million, okay. So then another incident customer called and said, we've got something that smells fishy. We can't figure it out. Can you be here? And I went and immediately jumped in a car because of the number and was looking at an ACH entry that was waiting for a submit of $1.5 million to a company that was a law firm for a refund on a disbursement to move it to next quarter. They wanted it back and then they would apply it next quarter. That, oh, we pay, we overpaid you. <laughs> send, send this much back. And, and it almost made it except the law firm address and the name, the one person who had user awareness training the week before also had been with the company for a quarter of a century and knew the names of every law firm, every major trust law firm around the United States. She knew them all. She could, she, she's, she's a dictionary, right? And she says, I didn't know they had an office here. And we went and looked, and sure enough, the address came back as a museum. <laughs> it wasn't. Hmm. And we contacted the law firm's main office. We don't have a branch there. So they knew, she, she knew something was wrong, but they were, were a mouse click away from a million and a half. Man. And then in another situation, I had to inform them after doing a look. I said, hey, um, this isn't going to be pretty, but um, you vendor who's complaining that they haven't been paid, I was able to figure out that the software that you have that is doing your ACHs writes a file into a folder over the network. That file is shared, and it's shared to everyone. So anyone on the network has the capability of clicking on that shared folder, clicking on a date, and, and it even, even scheduled 
payments, month payments that repeat at the same price for a year or two years or three are written in there as little batch text files. They're not encrypted. At a certain time, the software every night kicks off and runs everything in the, in the current year, month, date folder. Like 1130 at night, it runs a batch and dumps all that on interchange. Well, here's the interesting thing. Anyone on the network can change the routing in that text file and divert those funds anywhere they want it to go if the routing is valid. Hmm. But your back-end system, which is, in this case, was using SAP and, and, and Oracle, where you track it all, won't know that change has occurred because it's out of process with the software you use for your payment system. So if they have access to change the routing, then when the batch runs, it wires the funds to the wrong place. And the hacker can then go modify the file to have the original routing number that's in the batched folder. And it will tell you in the folder that it went to the right place. And it will tell you in the software it went to the right place. And since you're doing so many transactions and nobody is actually auditing the bank account, you won't know for three or four months until the number of the balance is not correct. So in theory, I could, could, if you'd like, show you why the other vulnerabilities that we found when I was scanning your network that would allow anyone who has an internet connection to gain access to your network, if they had the time to explore and find this and figured that out, I could, within a matter of minutes, go ahead and write my own invoice and you can pay me for everything I've just done for you without ever knowing it. And it won't hmm. show up in your payment system. And when I showed them that, they were floored because that meant they could figure out what happened to several million dollars that just vanished. They have no idea when or where it happened <laughs> because <laughs> it's just a slow bleed here and a slow bleed there. And, and you're talking about auditing years of financial information that isn't printed on paper. It's all digital. And to pull it from the bank, uh, well, they go back three. So it was mm. darn near impossible. In that one ca in those three cases, ultimately, every single aspect of how it happened, the user awareness contributed to preventing it, a lack of or a lack of user awareness to a specific part of it allowed it to happen but company had uh, there were other problems that were existing that forced the firewall to the person doing the ACH or that person wasn't considered because they were a customer or the technology itself failed so if you can't make an end user in your own company aware and you're not realizing that your customer, your vendor, your supplier also need to be aware of how you do things to know that something as simple as not, uh, if an email is suspicious, you don't say reply with, uh, did you intend on sending this to me? <laughs> 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 you call the person on the phone, on a, on a phone, you call them and you say, Hello, I just wanted to say I received this email from you requesting 
um, um, a million and a half back. Um, can you tell me why? <laughs> <laughs> Did you send this? Because guess what? It came from somebody who was legitimately expected to do something like that, who had done it in the past because they compromised that, that person's email account and had the two weeks during Christmas and New Year to read through every email that person had sent and received because that company did not have their system patched. So ultimately, I was able to establish the path of how the request for a $1.5 million disbursement came in, where it came from, and was able to find online with a couple of Google dorks, uh, the people who took credit for the hack, and they got in through free software running on a free OS tied to um, an active directory that also was tied to the network, and they didn't have a dedicated IT person who knew how to secure that in a way so that that couldn't happen. It's, it's, we do it physically in the world today. You know, you don't walk up. It used to be you shake hands with someone. Well, you know, now, now people bump fists. So you're not spreading germs. Well, I don't know where your hand's been. Let's bump elbows. Okay. Well, I don't know where your elbow's been. I don't know where, let's just wave at each other, you know, and now we're, and now you add in WPA and WPA2 and now it's airborne. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it is really, there is no way to make it pretty enough so that that people don't understand the truth without having some sense of gloom and doom. The good news is, if the internet goes off for a month, <laughs> uh, it, we will survive. The people in Houston <laughs> and Florida uh, that survived through the hurricane, you know, that, yeah, we will survive. It will probably be more like, you know, what's what's happening in Puerto Rico. But, um, you know, with, with no communication, it makes it very difficult. But it's not like the instant the Internet goes off, anyone but the people watching Netflix aren't just going to fall over dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The children in the house would argue. The younger people, none of them are children anymore. They're all past past the teenage stage. But um, they would they would beg to differ uh, that it is very important. I get the internet fixed. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Let's hop into overrated, underrated. I'm going to give you some hot topics. Social security numbers, overrated or underrated? As far as being a security risk. Yes. Yes, um, the, the, I, I would, the need for social security numbers versus the need. Okay, we should well, probably be without them. Um, that's kind of an itch, that's a, that's an interesting one, and and I can't answer it with a short answer. Um, I'll try to be as short as I can. In in my billfold, which I have managed not to lose, um, for a long time, I have a card with my social security number on it. It says on the back, "Do not laminate this card." The reason I still have it is because I laminated it um, <laughs> <laughs> because I kept losing them and having to get them replaced. And it took three hours every time I did it because I worked mm-hmm. as, a, as a, I worked on a farm. Right. So, you know, you're working in the rain on a tractor sitting on your billfold and, you know, you grind your Social Security card to pieces. So anyway, it says this card's invalid if it's not signed. Okay, so there's my signature and my social, and it says improper use of the card and or number by the number holder, any other person is punishable by fine, imprisonment, or both. 
it says the card is the property of the Social Security Department, okay? And it's got the numbers and everything on it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, as a result of the Equifax breach, I asked a number of different people to take out the Social Security card they had and look on the back. That's no longer printed on the back of the new cards. Interesting. And technically, when you look at a situation like Wells and the false accounts that were spun up, those had Social Security numbers in them, didn't they? Because mm -hmm. you can't get a bank account without it. So technically, every one of those accounts that was bogus accounts that was created, somebody violated the use of the credit card number or the social security number. Not, a, not only that, they stole someone's identity. They forged, forged a signature or forged the information. So, okay, social security is a number, whether it's, whether it's important or not. I think at this point, that uh, given the number of breaches that have happened, it's about as likely to be able to be rained back in as it would be for me to capture the raindrops that fell last year. <laughs> yeah, It's gone. It's out there. That horse done rode out the barn. Some other system will have to be created, and you could solve a number of these problems with a couple of simple changes. If I give you a... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just for the sake of, uh, making it somewhat reasonable, we'll, a good, uh, a time-stamped instance that's counted down to the microsecond and we generate every single person in the U.S. a good, you know, microseconds apart, so they're all unique, and I give you that good. And I also give you, uh, another list of, of those that are alternates you can use that will tie to you. Then and only then can you figure out whether the one that you used on your credit card application at the bank or your uh, insurance application went to a specific company to determine where a breach occurred. So, so here's my question for you. If you went to the bank to fill out your, your, your information for your bank account, which they run a credit report for, and there was a printed strip on there that had a key and they tore that off and stuck it in the little folder they give you when you set up an account that says, this is the number a person from the credit verification company will use to verify they are the authorized entity to contact you. And this is the pin you or the number you will give them back to validate. And the real-time process is you submit that application. They submit that application and instantaneously your phone rings back while you're still there because they can do it in almost real time. And uh, someone in the call center says, uh, how are you today? And they say, we need to, okay, well, I need to get the pen. They tell you the pen, their pen. You tell them their pen. They say, yes, this is me. Yes, I authorize a credit check on me based on the information that's on the form that's already in the system. They don't base it on new information, only on the valid information. Somebody else supplies the same mission, uh, same information with a different phone number and a different physical address. Then they need to mail a card to that person's former address and call the old number. They need to find a way that you can approve who has the ability to access and request your credit report. They should be required to notify you if anyone does who it is and why, how they're using it, so that you know a company ran a credit report on you as part of a hiring process. Because in the one case where the company 
was willing to share with me that the reason they were hesitant in hiring me was because of my credit report. I said, let me explain a scenario to you here. <laughs> and I explained it. And, and the HR person went, you know, I didn't even think about that. The same thing happened to me, only I caught it because a statement came to my house and we were able to get it shut off before they got a whole bunch of money out. So they understood. And, and of course, I was hired. But you wouldn't know that they did that. You wouldn't know if your car insurance is checking you monthly, quarterly, or yearly. You wouldn't know if the bank is checking you weekly, monthly, or yearly. But I guarantee you they are checking you. They are using that. They are trusting Equifax, a company founded in the 1800s <laughs> by two brothers who could tell by the purchasing history of their grocery store customers whether or not they should extend store credit to them. Well, Bob's got a whole field of corn will be coming in here in two months. And, uh, man, he's got a big herd out there. So this, this, you know, he gets that herd in, they're going to, he's going to have, he's going to have plenty of cash. We can extend him credit for his groceries, uh, because that's how it started. It started out as a grocery market means for a market to determine whether or not a person could have a house account. Did you know that? No, did not. No. So how good are two guys who are grocery store guys at determining credit rating for somebody that's buying cars or property? Well, they acquired that talent. 100-year-old company. 100-year-old company. It's been around a long, long time, right? And along comes tech, and it's no longer kept in a journal where there's somebody writing it down on paper. It's now automated systems that are accepting data from API pushes, just spit, 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 thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of transactions. And somebody goes, well, you know what? Uh, we could use that to validate whether a person is, is, is dependable enough that we can rent them, rent them an apartment. Well, so you can't get a job. You can't get an apartment. You can't get a loan for a car to get to work. You can't, all because a company that can't secure the data that is required to prove you are who you say you are so you can get credit the 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 redundant irony there yes social security is is blown it's blown is it uh is it important to have some way to identify using a system like that yes can i do i have an answer for that there are some cognitive identity technologies that are in development one that um i'm i'm helping with that validates who a user is by things they know and the way they think that's not the traditional username password concept uh product that's um uh, in development it's called nimbus id um something like that might provide a mechanism that would prove the identity of a person for not only access, but for some form of security, other than in order for that to work, the government systems that are housing the data have to be secure. And as we know, contracts in the government go to the lowest bidder. <laughs> <laughs> and they have an RFP process that is so complex that you have to have all of these other key pieces in place in order to get even considered as a vendor you have to be a vendor to be considered a vendor mm -hmm. 
you have to be an approved vendor, which means you have to sell them something, but you can't unless you're a vendor. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the people who are doing the, the work, you know, um, you, you gotta, somebody has to sit back every once in a while and, and, and just kind of be a, an antagonist here and say, well, we knew Kapersky came from Russia. Why were we using it to secure government systems? <laughs> yep. I mean, we know that these chips are coming from foreign nations that we're including in our technology. If we inspect, if we inspect the meat and the grain that comes in from them, why is nobody reverse engineering the BIOS and the chips to know that the cameras they're selling for $39 can be monitored from anywhere? Who knows where they are? See, we've, we've missed, we've missed it for decades and we've missed it for decades. And the only way to actually fix the problem is to do a site shutdown and have a full inventory. Except what does that mean? See, CSC, CSC, almost every single standard says, first, you have to have an asset inventory discovery tool to build an inventory of all the systems that are connected to your public and private networks, scanning both IPv4 and 6, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to be automated because a person can't keep track of that on paper. It's, it's not possible. Then if you're using DHCP, since you're not doing it the right way with dedicated IPs for your internal network, then you have to have logging for your DHCP. And then the next step is you got to ensure that all of the equipment acquisitions automatically update to those inventory systems with processes and procedures, make sure they get entered into the scanning systems and the monitoring systems. And then you have to have all the systems connected to the network and the network devices themselves with their addresses, machine name, purpose, their asset value, their risk value. And you got to have network authentication for your 802.1x and control which devices can be connected. Okay, when you go back to Equifax, fail on one, fail on 1.3, on 1.4, on 1.5, and that pretty much says it all right there. If it's, it's, it's call it NIST, call it SANS, call it whatever you want to call it. What do you have to do to figure out what you need? You have to know what you have. And literally, if I had, if I had $50,000 in a, in a line in a contract that says, if I ask you for a current inventory of your computer and you, of your network infrastructure weighed by risk, and you cannot provide it within two hours there will be an automatic $50,000 increase in the contract price. I would have retired a long time ago because when you ask that question, it's answered by, well, here we are, but we're not sure. I'm not sure how accurate it is. Yeah. We'll have our guys start putting that together or here it is, but there's probably some stuff on there that's been retired. I have never had anyone not once in a, in a decade other than one location. Have I walked in and said, um, can you get me a current inventory list of every asset on your network, your network map, and a digital copies of your policies and procedures related to security and your active directory map of your organizational structure? And the guy went, yeah, sure, hold on. And he leaned over, popped open a boom. They go, I said, wow. 
so why do you need me here? And he said, oh, well, I just need somebody to verify that I'm not missing anything. Hmm. Obviously, obviously. So as to things being overrated or underrated, I would say that's kind of simpler. If it's, it's underrated if you end up impacted by it. Sure. Uh, because it's minor risk and not attended to or is used to get in. Or if it's left and rolled up and used with another combination of low or medium category risks, right? Then it was underrated because it caused an impact. It's overrated if and only if you're running all of the proper systems, have the right people on them, doing the processes and procedures, you're defended and properly prepared, in which case you can't actually justify having it because you don't see it. It's the... It's the, why is the grocery store out of my rock star? Why is the quickie mart out of my rock star? There's two rows of this one. There's two rows of this one. There's two rows of this one. It's always full, but my row, the one I like, is always empty and there's only one row of it. Well, obviously, they can't increase the par on that item if they don't know how many sales they missed. So they don't have a little button where you can go, I would have bought one if there had been one here, damn it. <laughs> to tell them <laughs> to tell them how many they missed right they don't mm-hmm. know so guess what they're they're limiting they're limiting their 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 consumer to 18 however many fit on that racks that stack versus the other ones where when you look back through there there's two full stacks and i've even gone to the point of taking an avery label to to this store to show them i took avery label little sticker labels and I and I put them on the on on the second row of cans on three different assorted rails that were too wide and and scheduled it so I would be there the day the guy that delivers that product <laughs> was there and I walked in I said can I ask you a question why is this always out he goes well um you know we we stock a, another we stock we're starting to stock another case this week and I went a case it was out on Tuesday that means Monday, since you come in on Sunday, that means Monday you sold out that row. Now, I don't have to have an accurate count to know if I look at the data and say how many customers came in between the time it was stocked and the time the last one was rung up. How many customers came through? Okay, that's your average par for that number of customers. How many customers you have a week? Okay, you need six cases. And we did the math right there, and I said, you need six cases on the floor. And the guy went, how do you do that? And I said, it's simple. You have to understand what the problem is. If you don't know what you have, you don't know what you need. If you know what you need and you can't get enough, then you have to figure out how many more you should need. Mm-hmm. It's, and that is the problem. They don't know what they have to know what they need. They get what they want thinking it fixes the problem. So they end up underrating the importance of a decision or overrating the quality of a product mm-hmm. well everybody's using that yeah everybody that's using oracle is vulnerable to the struts phone yep every one of them until it's patched sure okay everybody that's using windows tomorrow or today if there's a new phone is vulnerable to it until they get it patched so it's not it's not something that is simple as as just saying rated underrated to me sure fair enough 
Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Next one. Got two left for you. Social engineering. Is it underrated or overrated? I can say that in the one instance where I was brought in to do a very interesting pen test scenario, which was blind, they gave me nothing and said, see what you can find. I found four routers that they didn't even know they had on the internet that were end, past end of life by two years, had expired certificates, and through the search engine for found they had been hit by pretty much every country on a regular basis. As to what was behind them, I don't know because I wasn't authorized to go farther than that. I don't. I didn't see any indicators of, of an actual breach. I think it's probably a business they bought <laughs> had stuff sitting in a rack somewhere. I, the, the IP ranges were not ranges that communicated over their network once we did the research. So we think it was some equipment that was acquired and the company was sold or something and somehow got left out there. But because it had their certs from years ago, um, I was able to find it. In that case, I wasn't able to find any vulnerabilities just by spending two weeks trying to find every way in. Sure. Um, they said, okay, well, we just want to make sure that there wasn't anything obvious that was, you know, with these sites we gave you that that was obviously not done right. We know there are some issues, but um, we just want to make sure there wasn't anything that was blatantly obvious and you found everything that we knew about. So we're good there. So I said, okay, well, I met the target and technically you have nothing over a, a, a three. There are no four or five criticals. So technically, since you know and you've already got them documented and you're in process, then you are compliant, technically, because you're addressing the issues. Basically, all you have to do to be compliant with PCI is have a plan to be compliant with PCI. So our incident response plan is, in the event of a prospect breach, is to notify everybody there may be a prospect breach, run around screaming, flailing arms, and yelling, the sky is falling is technically a compliant response. <laughs> technically. <laughs> in, the, uh, in, in this particular case, social engineering came to play because when I delivered the report, the report was put on his desk, a picture taken with my camera phone, and I sent it to him and I said, did great on the virtual. The report is on your desk and sent it from my phone. And the guy, he said, dang it, something told me you were going to do that. And I said, huh. hey, I was authorized. You, you gave me open, carte blanche to see if I could figure out a way to get to your internal network. I did. I walked in with a Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> While everybody was in the conference room, a Christmas present was your report. <laughs> everybody was in the conference room. Nobody was at the reception desk. I looked over there. I waited. Nobody said anything. I walked in. There was a guy sitting at his desk, and I said, uh, and introduced, introduced myself and gave him a bogus name. I said, I'm supposed to go put this on, on uh, so-and-so's desk. I can't say his name, obviously. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't out him. And he goes, oh, sure. And he said, um, why didn't he take you to the desk? He said, well, he's in, the, in, the, in with the party bunch you know, um, and they're in the middle of something. He's talking with some of the higher ups, or whatever. He just asked me to go put this on his desk. He said to come out here, find somebody and they'd show me where to go. Okay, sure. No problem. The guy took me through two secure doors that required cards and a keep, keypad. 
<laughs> walk you right up. He goes, yeah, right here. And I go, okay, let me, uh, I'm supposed to put, I'm supposed to make a note here. Let me, and I grabbed a piece of paper and I took a pen and I went, thank you very much. And the guy walked off and I wrote it, oh, wrote, wrote a note, put the, put it on the desk, took the picture. And then I walk, you know, as I, after I sent it, I walked around snapping pictures of the stuff that people had left on their desks because it was time for the Christmas party. So social engineering is probably underrated and overrated. It's underrated at one level and overrated at another. If I can pull up in the parking lot and see the open blinds of the CISO's office and the Wi-Fi password is on his dry erase board, <laughs> it's obviously <laughs> underrated. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> if he keeps his blinds closed 24-7 and never opens the window to see the beauty of the day outside, instead of keeping that password written on something yeah, I'm not I'm not going to go so far as to say that you shouldn't write your passwords down they just need to be in a locked drawer you have the you're the only one who has the key to mm-hmm. they need to be secure if you need to write them down you secure them whether that's in a lockbox inside a safe that requires two people to open it so you know <laughs> there's no there's not there has to be collusion in order for that to be to be you know accessed then sure. fine so be it you can do it with a red active directory domain too something a lot of people don't know there's actually the capability of having uh, one domain ad trust based uh, on another but that one won't trust uh, the second so you can't change the red uh, hackers can't get to it they can't they can't do anything on it so in that case the social engineering to get the username and password doesn't breach the non-social virtual side. So yeah, uh, it's both. Social engineering okay. is you're only okay. you're only underrating it if the adversary is better than what you can envision, and you only overrate it if you're expending an enormous amount of effort to have a man trap level security at the we'll use that as an example at the front of the office when in fact you're in a gated corporate lot (laughs) 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 okay look i don't you know if an employee is smuggling somebody in in their trunk you've got bigger problems than than, (laughs) (laughs) so i've been in situations like that where where as a vendor you go to one parking lot the employees go to another and yet they all go through the same man trap at the front door to get into the building obviously if they have their car in the lot behind a fence and they have the badge to get into the building and there are video cameras on the parking lot one security guard can make sure that people aren't going in and out to their car without swiping and be able to flag them carrying stuff out. So, you know, it's social engineering is it's, it's the kid who figures out, Hey, we can take a plastic cup and or paper cup and pop the top off that Coke bottle sticking out of the machine and get half of the Coke out without paying for it. (laughs) That's, that's a socially engineered hack. You know, it's, it's, it's understanding how it works and, and seeing it combined with a physical hack, you're using something that's exposed. It's a vulnerability that's there and you, you know, it becomes a social as soon as hackers share it. 
it's not me engineering the Coke guy to give me a Coke, but you know, that's not hard to do either. If you help them by handing them the bottles out of the out of the case they're stocking in the machine and say, hey, if I help you with this, can I get a free Coke? That's social engineering. <laughs> <laughs> so, Absolutely. And you know, a kid can do it. If a kid can get as a kid, did you get in the cookie jar? Sure, of course. Well, um, that was a physical hack. And uh, so that you can make it a social one if you convince your mom to buy chocolate chip cookies while you're at the store and she puts them in the insecure cookie holder. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's underrated and overrated. Okay. Last one. Might have to explain this one a little bit further, but cyber threat news releases in marketing, specifically what was going on around the crack Wi-Fi vulnerability. First of all, vulnerability is going to be present everywhere. And it's going to be present everywhere for one reason. That's because we've allowed BYOD to you know, have your own phone line and your own computer in your pocket everywhere you go. And that phone is connected to a cell tower and therefore has a data connection to the Internet 24-7, whether you're awake or asleep, if it's, if it's on. Everybody came out with their concept based on their understanding of how you secure that or their product securing it. That is not valid in a lot of the cases because they don't understand what the real nitty-gritty granular impact of that is if you can install a zero encryption certificate on a Wi-Fi device at an infected point. And that encryption is the encryption that it tells every router it connects to from that point on will use. And it is zero instead of 256 or 512 or 1024, whatever. Then it's connected and looks like it's a secure connection, but it's not actually encrypted. It's flagged as encrypted by the certificate, but there's no encryption algorithm behind it. It's not encrypted. So. They say, our product will detect that. Well, their product may detect the traffic for the exploit going through the network to the device, but only if it's looking at Wi-Fi traffic because the infection doesn't happen over the wire. It happens through the air. So they say proximity is the issue. They have to have proximity. Well, mere 25 years ago, approximately, I'm, I'm guesstimating, it may have been longer. The phone became a smart device, and the internet then uh, was connected to that device, which also now has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth on it. So the concept of proximity is one that would take someone who doesn't think like a hacker, and they'd think, oh, I'm safe because they have to be near me, and there aren't that many people who, who are near me. Well, they're forgetting. They want to get you. They, if you're a bank, <laughs> they want they want to get you. Mm-hmm. If you're if you have data, they want to get you. And assuming that is not a threat, you automatically discard it so you don't research it. Well, if you look at it and you look at the four way handshake and how that works, and there's a group of group of people I've shared with that we're trying to establish what that really means in respect to all of the other handshake protocols that are out there because it's used in Kerbos. Handshakes like that are used in TLS. They're used in every connection. Basically, it's the hello, hello, in initial interaction when a 
your phone rings, you look at the incoming number, if it's a name you know, and you say hello, and blah, 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 there's a brief little period there. And if, you know, there's a security situation, you say, okay. are you on speakerphone? Currently? Yeah. They, okay, no, you're not. Okay, great. Or you say, hey, uh, do you mind if I put it on speakerphone? No, I do not, right? Well, that's that's that exchange that happens to where I know that what I'm communicating to you needs to be filtered for more sensitive information because others may be in the proximal range to hear or overhear the conversation. I have no idea who is going to hear this particular podcast. It's one of the questions I asked, who is your audience? Because there are things I know that I cannot share. I simply would not be that careless to share those things if a hacker were to gain insight. But I can tell you this. The concept of war driving, which used to involve a laptop and a Orenco air card or air crack or whatever, uh, where they were driving around looking for Wi-Fi hotspots that were open to use your internet for free, basically. That's why you wardrobe, so you get free internet, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is now internet-enabled remote zombie war driving. Anyone, anywhere with an internet connection. And that internet connection can be via their cell phone. <laughs> Interesting. So some guy sitting in a field <laughs> somewhere halfway around the world, if he's figured out how to do it and has figured out how to compromise your phone and is, has the capability of writing and crafting very intricate software, like some of the stuff that's been leaked from places it shouldn't have been leaked with the word security in their name um in that kind of a scenario the concept that you know people say oh well you know the you should never use your ipad or cell phone in the bathroom technically you shouldn't even carry it in there because you could be a remote camera feed for a youtube channel and not even know it (laughs) yep (laughs) You're bored. You shouldn't have cell phones in your conference room because you don't know whether the mic is on or the camera's on. They shouldn't be any place that there are social security numbers, routing numbers, or HIP medical data, right? And surprisingly, during the last election, I walked into the polling place with my cell phone in my pocket and the camera facing forward out of my pocket, and no one said, Sir, you can't bring a camera in a polling place. But guess what? It's illegal to do. Bring a camera in a polling place. But it's not a camera. It's a smartphone. (laughs) Sir, you can't carry that in. And I happened to be on doing things in the while I was there. I was doing something else. I wasn't there to vote. And sat down. I said, you know, I find it odd. (laughs) You got people out on their standing in line with their cell phones out, twittering. They're tweeting and and they're Facebooking and they're emailing and and no one, no one here, everyone is oblivious. And he goes, yep, not required to. But if you take out a camera, I take it away from you. I said, but this is a camera. And he says, no, it's a cell phone. (laughs) Interesting. It's not flagged as a camera. Okay. Our perception of the tech has changed to where phone is no longer a phone. Phone is designed to communicate by voice with someone, and and I I I know how to tell if your party line has been picked up on a call. 
I grew up with a phone number that four people answered, four different families. If it was one ring, it was family number one. <laughs> if it went bling, it was for us. If it was bling, bling, <laughs> it was for <laughs> bling, bling, bling. <laughs> That's how you knew the phone was for you. And when you pick it up, you know, or you're on a call, someone would pick up and you go, I'm on a call right now. Oh, sorry. Click. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. If they could pick it up real slow, they may be able to listen. You know, I had a neighbor girl who used who who would pick up and listen to me on the phone. And I figured out that I could put a voltmeter on the phone and there would be a noticeable voltage drop anytime somebody picked it up. So That's you would know somebody picked it up. Yeah, and I, and I was a kid, you know, with a with a Radio Shack voltmeter. So I figured out how to tell when somebody was intercepting or or when there was more than one phone picked up in our house or the neighbor's house cuz we were all right there off off the same pole, right? Sure. So yeah, it's it's um it's deeper than just what you see when you consider okay, yes, 15 years ago it was proximity for the radio. 20 years ago. But that's before the smartphone. <laughs> mhm. Add the smartphone in, game over. Add the iPad with a with a cell card in it, <laughs> SIM card, game over. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it can connect to the internet even when you're not on the internal Wi-Fi. Not only that, it can connect to the internet. And if you have auto discovery turned on and auto connect to known networks, your iPad is connecting to the internet and connecting to the cell provider and providing a bridge into your network that you're not managing because it's the employee's BYOD device uh, because you thought you were saving money on spending for your tech because back in the day, that desktop that was only in the accounting department or the executive desk was a $10,000 IBM computer. Now, Mm -hmm. they are as disposable as, well, put it this way. You can buy a computer for the price of Two steak dinners for two at a nice, yep. nice restaurant, right? Some place that serves aged beef and some, uh, you know, spinach, spinach with pine nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some oysters. Yeah, a couple hundred, a couple hundred bucks. Boom, you got a computer that will connect to anything, Wi-Fi or whatever. So, yes, your phone is now, you're bugged. You bugged yourself. Congratulations. We all did. Everywhere you go. If it's on, someone knows where you are. Google knows if you're on Android. What's the most vulnerable OS? (laughs) Android. (laughs) (laughs) It is by far (laughs) the most vulnerable. Okay. Okay. Um, What's the next vulnerable phone? iOS. What are the <laughs> primaries? Android and iOS. <laughs> guess why? Yep. Guess why they're the prominent vulnerable ones? Because they're the uh, Microsoft didn't didn't capture that market quite as well. So, is there any wonder that that a somebody who has a deeper understanding of how the original handshake for the protocol works would not not tell you? Yeah, yeah, it's the potential is severely underrated because. I've, in pen testing, used compromised cell phones hooked to a Parrot AR drone to fly over a building and capture network traffic on their Wi-Fi. Hmm. So if I know that, I also know that 
all I got to do is have a solar charger, a motorcycle battery, and one of those little plug-in cigarette lighter USB chargers and a plastic case to keep it from the rain. And for, you know, I could use my old cell phone with uh, with a uh, $35 a month SIM card. And for a couple hundred bucks, I can put a sniffer on any Wi-Fi system out there that's not secure 24-7, 365. Because nobody ever goes up on the roof to check on the roof, except the AC sure. guy. <laughs> Nobody looks for it. The concept of social engineering is not limited to what you think it is. Social engineering is an example of a fail uh, when somebody has a Facebook post that says, flip your age around backwards and post it. And people post it. I'm like, dude, that's the same thing as your age forward. And you wouldn't (laughs) post that. God, I didn't even realize that. Uh, yeah, you just gave them your name and your age. Yeah. Now they've got your profile and, oh, oh, look, here's where you ate lunch today. <laughs> now they know where you live and where you are. Oh, hey, guess what? I can pull down the photo, look at the EXIF, and tell what kind of camera you used and the longitude and latitude, where it was taken and the time. Um, okay, now we got that. And you, all of this stuff is, it is as fundamental as old school Knowing how to change a spark plug pre-electronic ignition, you still know how to change a spark plug. Knowing how to set the timing when you went from points to electronic transmission required some adjustment. Now that the ECU communicates via the CAN bus to the transmission control unit and the body control unit and the motor cranks over the first revolution and sprays fuel into the cylinder to lubricate it while it's cranking over, checking to see if the modules are all there, blah, 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 blah. And on the third time it cranks, it changes the firing position and starts the car and how all that. Now that requires somebody who understands computing. Sure. And the significance of it is only to the level of the person who's doing the assessment. So if you were to ask my mom, who is highly computer literate for for her age, she is extremely literate. I have to give her credit. A former VP, you know, second in command for a title company in the days of the IBM Selectric, who said that they would never convert the title business over to digital because it has to be physical for the signatures and the notary. And now they're talking about how we're going to do virtual notary. Mm-hmm. Okay, she's computer literate. If you asked her what it meant, she'd say, oh, well, I don't think that's a risk. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. So it's easier just to say it's not a threat. Is You, you live, uh, I'm assuming, in Kansas City, correct? Yep. Okay. Is Ebola a threat in Kansas City? One would say no. No, not if there's Ebola in Kansas City. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, someone can fly halfway around the world, hit Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and be in Kansas City in under a day and a half. Oh, yeah. So, knowing that, is Ebola a threat in Kansas City? Just as much as anywhere else? There's a manufacturing company that's in Kansas City that makes a product and distributes in South Africa where there is Ebola. And they routinely send people back and forth so that, you know, there's at least eight people constantly on the U.S. continent being trained on the new stuff and what the products are, blah, blah, blah. 
Is Ebola a threat in Kansas City now? More so. Okay, so is Wi-Fi, WPA and WPA2 actually overrated or underrated? Um, Is using your computer and being 100% totally dependent on it underrated or overrated? Sounds like it's underrated. The potential is significant when you look at, okay, just... If there's any question, all you got to do is just at any given point in your daily life, just walk into the break and walk to the breaker panel and flip the breaker off and see whether you can make it three days without flipping it back on. (laughs) (laughs) I can. (laughs) First thing we do is consolidate everything into into, you know, coolers and ice boxes. And we have the water necessary to to do what's, you know necessary there and um i've got gas for the barbecue grill Uh, i've got apc and and voltage converters that will step 12 volts to 110 so i can start the car charge up my apc that has enough amperage to power my refrigerator for a short period of time to get it cold again and keep it cold or to power uh, if the internet's still there uh, and i don't have power i can power my router to be able to get to the you know TV for information, I have radios that are charged in the event that the cell network doesn't work. I'm prepared for a natural disaster um, because I lived through a through a tornado some years back. Spent some time down in New Orleans, where they, you know, they everybody knew if there's a hurricane. You got you're either going to fare fairly well or you're you're not um, yeah. in that scenario. So you learn to learn to be prepared and if you are prepared then there is no gloom and doom about it it's it's not something you need fear if you're prepared if you don't recognize the risk and the threat and prepare then you have every reason to be in a reactive state because you you don't know what you're going to do how many people in in katrina drowned thousands right a large number yep how many of them had a trash bag and a couch cushion they could have taken trash bags, put a couch cushion in there, tied it in a knot, put another one on it and tied it in a knot, and put another one and tied it in a knot, and used those for a flotation device, couldn't they? I saw in Houston when the hurricane hit that they were rescuing a family from their front porch. <laughs> then there was a boat on a trailer beside the house. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there <laughs> on the trailer with life jackets. <laughs> the people are way, you know, they're... They're waiting out. Okay, well, you knew the water was coming up. When it was ankle deep, you could have gone and got the life jackets. Yeah. Okay. It is, it's requires people to think. That is the key. So I know that it's been a rather long interview session and I apologize if I've, ram- if I've rambled through that. If there's anything you need to edit out, you can feel free to do so. <laughs> no, it's been great. I think that it's been an awesome conversation. Lots of fantastic insight, but you know, we'll let you go. Do appreciate it so much. Thanks a lot for sharing. And There is one thing that, um, one thing that I want to make sure that everybody knows to do, and that is Regardless of the level of expertise of the person who's speaking or being interviewed, um, there are considerations that may or may not impact the accuracy of their information. You have to learn how to do it yourself, and you have to, you, you must, if you plan on being able to continue using technology and depending on it, you must learn every day 
new valuable information and not depend on what you read in Facebook as a result of a current threat uh, as far as a product. A product won't solve a problem, only action will. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the problem. Keep asking why until you can no longer find a why. Why did yep. it happen? Well, somebody didn't make a decision they needed to make. Why didn't they do it? They didn't have budget. Why didn't they have budget? It wasn't justified. Why wasn't it justified? Nobody could explain it. Why could nobody explain it? Because it was the wrong people explaining. (laughs) I guarantee you someone at Equifax knew. I guarantee you someone at Yahoo knew. I guarantee you in every breach situation, in every company I've gone in, I have always found someone who knows exactly what they really need. And when I ask them, and I confidentially say, if I could grant you one wish as a result of this paid consulting that they have me doing, if mm-hmm. I could just magically grant you one wish without putting your name on it, what would it be? Guess what that answer is? Better patch management system. 99% of the time, it's a better patch management system. Because they know. Um, and, and then in another business segment, it will always be, I need better network insight via SIM and a SOC. So one segment, it's about patch management. You get to the next level of business size, it becomes a different problem. What is the biggest problem you have? The people in the C-suite are not technical enough to know what it means. Mm -hmm. He said, just go in there and ask them one question when you're presenting. Just ask one question. Do you guys use wireless network? NRC so calls it Weefy. <laughs> Weefy? What's Weefy? Weefy. Weefy. You know. That'll answer your question right there. That answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was no Weefy used in, uh, from my end to connect to the internet today. There may have been on yours if you were using a wireless connection for your device, but mm-hmm. uh, likely that is not the case. However, we don't know. We don't know that your computer or my computer hasn't been hacked and somebody's been listening the whole time. Or that the VoIP channel from Uber conference was hacked. We don't know. You, you can't see it. So uh, on, a, on a parting note, don't trust anything. Validate everything. Great. And patch. Awesome. Often. And patch. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. <laughs> Should definitely live by that. <laughs> We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.